If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From enslaved people in the Renaissance era to Roman emperors and medieval saints, African people have long played a role in European history. The presence of Africans in Europe is something that Professor Olivetta Telly traces in her book, African Europeans, An Untold Story. In a conversation recorded as part of our virtual lecture series, she told our content director, Dave Musgrove, more. Very, very excited and pleased to be able to welcome our speaker. She's extremely busy and uh, has a lot going on on the plate, so really great that we've been able to get her. It's uh, Professor Olivetta Otele, who is uh, author of African Europeans and Untold History, and she's also Professor of the History of Slavery and Memory of Enslavement at the University of Bristol, and indeed a Vice President of the Royal Historical Society. So uh, someone right up there in uh, in the upper echelons of uh, the history community. So Olivetta, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, uh, how are you? Yes, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure. So your, your, your latest book, your, your, your new book, um, African Europeans. Um, in the intro to the book, you explain that uh, quite a few books have been written, quite a lot of research has been carried out uh, on specific black individuals in Europe, often in association with the uh, abolition of slavery, um, or the black presence in certain defined geographical areas. But you're taking a much broader look, right? You're trying to um, consider the place of Africans right across Europe, Europe over two millennia. What, what, so just drop us in. What are you trying to do with the book and what persistent myths are you attempting to debunk? Well, actually, uh, I'm fascinated by long histories, and I, I like the idea that, you know, um, very specific, focused history can tell you about events and the excitement right around the event. But what I like to know is what preceded that, what led to that, and sometimes you don't have that. So I, I really wanted to go beyond uh, the Black presence in certain settings and look at the global kind of um, uh, presence, global, mostly European uh, presence uh, in European uh, African presence in European settings, and I also wanted to look at the idea that um, we can't have multiple identities. Well, already in the third century, some people did, and I wanted to look at that and, and go into in that and and interrogate the fact that um, we talk about when we talk about African presence or Black presence in Europe, it's always very contentious. It's it's a history of pain. Uh, rarely a history of collaborations, 
um, you know, I wanted to inject some nuances, really. And one of the things you talk about is you're challenging the way that researchers have dealt with um, certain black African Europeans as kind of exceptional, sort of focusing on, on individuals, I guess. So, so tell us what you're trying to do there. Uh, that was interesting as well, because I did that. I, I, I focused on certain individuals, but the idea was to show that by focusing on individuals, you do have a glimpse of what their lives were like. And also because these are the, the very few accounts that we have in terms of archival material. Um, but by putting them up there on a pedestal, uh, there's this narrative about them being so exceptional that they cannot represent the whole community of, of, of Africans. Therefore, they're completely different. They're barely, even not Africans. And in terms, you know, it's because they were so close to European narratives and European journeys and European intellectuals. That's why they became exceptional. And I really wanted to fight against that as well. You know, exceptionalizing people um, is a double-edged sword. So you're trying to place those individuals in the in the wider communities that, that they existed in. And you you will forgive me if we do mention a couple of individuals as as we as we go through, though. I, I hope. Um, so so you've we've already. Um, talked a little bit about the the, the term African-European and, and kind of you say in the book that it's a provocation for those who deny this idea of multiple identities, as, as you just said. Um, but Af- the subject and, and geographical spread of your book is is broad. It's a couple of millennia. It's an entire continent. How, how possible is it to generalise about African-Europeans as a, as, a, as, a, as a group? It's virtually impossible. So actually, the provocation is also in the terms of the use of African-Europeans as in, as a reference or echo to uh, uh, the, the term African-Americans. And I wanted to play with that as well. African-Americans, meaning people who came from the African continent, or at least their ancestors, came from different places in the African continent. And yet they call themselves nowadays African-Americans. Therefore, there's a recognition of that past with multiple um, kind of geographical origins. And it's the same for African-Europeans. And I thought, why not as well do that? Um, It's very hard indeed to generalize. And that's not at all what I'm trying to do here. Again, it's a provocation. You pick and choose. And yet all these people were indeed, um, you know, defined as Africans, but they also were Europeans. Okay, I'm going to attempt to sort of chart, go through the the chronology that you do. We're probably not going to have enough time, so we'll, we'll have to we'll have to skip over some bits. But let's go back to the start of your book um, uh, and, and, the, and the classical period, the Roman period, um, where you, where you where you kick off. Um, what was the, the the Roman imperial attitude to Africa and Africans? I think I read in the in the book that you said there wasn't necessarily a clear divide between Europe and Africa amongst in in the in the Roman mind. No, it wasn't as defined as we see it nowadays, and simply because the Roman Empire was about conquest and territories and acquiring more and more territories. So, what is defined as Africa is yet another place to conquer and to to uh, to reign and to dominate. And and the the subject, the colonial subject in that in that in those spaces, uh, had the possibility to well to go to Rome, to go to European settings and capitals, and and to to try and make um, a name for themselves if if they if they wanted to, and if they had the connections needed for that, um, and and that's why I took uh, Septimius Severus uh, for example. So there's a class element that is much more important there than the story of race actually. And then I, I show through other examples, Fronto and, and many others, that there's also this idea of 
um, claiming one's spaces and one one places of birth by claiming, um, by being proud and presenting themselves as Africans, although they belong to the Roman Empire, they're Roman subjects, actually. So it was interesting for me to play with these different, um, the way they use these identities to, to well, to to get ahead and, and to just, you know, further their career in some places. Tell us more about Septimus Severus. You, you mentioned him him there. What's, what's, who was he and what was his place in the story? He's, a, he's an interesting character. Well, he was an interesting character because um, quite often when we talk about um, the Roman Empire, we rarely make the connections with North Africa. And he was somebody who was born in North Africa in a very wealthy family. So he had the connections needed. He was very ambitious, very intelligent, hardworking. Sounds like a good, a good, good person, but he wasn't at all. He was incredibly um, um, ruthless in his ambitions. So he managed to kind of seize the moment, come to Rome at the time when Rome has got rid of his uh, its, its emperor, seize the power, make connections with uh, politicians, the Senate, and and present himself as the new savior of Rome. Uh, he goes on on a conquest spree like most of the, the Roman emperors were, did and ends up in, in Britannia. And um, he, well, long story short, he dies in York. But before that, he, he you know, he, he's there to um, subjugate the populations and to impose his reign. So you have somebody who's not particularly nice. But what was interesting for me to look at as well is um, kind of his story as a father, as a failed father, really. Because he allowed, he was so ambitious and consumed by his career that he allowed his um, his two sons to to completely to completely uh, do whatever they wanted. Uh, the butchery was uh, well known, and um, and the two brothers were competing against each other. The two brothers were ruthless uh, criminals in that nowadays, um, probably um, not necessarily up to the challenge of of reigning, but. What was interesting is that the father constantly trying to save them, providing uh, um, a bride for for Caracalla, one of them, uh, and the bride uh, was uh, the daughter of of uh, Septimius' best friend, who also came from from North Africa, and in the end they were so horrible, all of them, that even the best friend decided that he needed to kill the emperor. Of course, it was a failed attempt. And the friend ended up being killed. It's a, it's a really a story of stuff that 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 makes movies. It's horrible. It's full of intrigues. And I wanted to show that those African Europeans are not simply intellectuals who are flying around across, of, of you know, sailing across Europe and and making friends. Some of them were actually horrible, and they are part of European history because they were Europeans. Septimus uh, Bust is is at the British Museum. He's is very much a European and and African. Yeah. So, so where, do, do we know where he was actually born? Do, is there any um, somewhere in Magna, North Africa? Yes, North Africa, which is nowadays Libya. Okay. Okay. Brilliant. Um, right. Let's let's leap on a bit because, like I said, I want to cover a fair bit of ground. So, um, I want to move us into the into the uh, Middle Ages, if that's okay. But there is a link from from your book uh, to, to help us do that, and that's um, that's Saint Maurice, um, who uh, uh, well, actually, tell us about Saint Maurice. So he's this is a third century figure who becomes obviously important in, in Rome, who then becomes important in the Middle Ages. So, so chart that journey for us. Well, St. Maurice is another one. He's said to have been born actually in nowadays Egypt. Um, so North African again. And um, 
he defied the, the the he defied the power by refusing to 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 bow to uh, to to the emperor. Um, he was. I'm going quite quickly about his story here. The, the beginning, at least, um, uh, he was executed. But what is interesting for me was the legend of Saint Maurice, how it was transformed. So we move from the, this North African defying Rome. Um, who uh, uh, um, who died as a martyr and then becomes a key figure in European history as somebody who uh, was brave, as somebody who was religious, as somebody that we find in 13th century, uh, well, nowadays, uh, Germany, uh, Brandenburg, Germany, and who completely transformed the way we looked at, at religion because he's a black saint and he's presented as such and he's honoured as such. So you have... Um, you know this black figure in European landscape, really, uh, that 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 is quite st- staggering. But at the same time, people are accepting that there's a link between um, conquest, religious uh, religion, and at the same time, he's part of um, uh, um, kind of European identity. So it's not that he tra- his color transcends everything. It's just. His color is part of um, European story. And again, it's accepted in, in the Middle Ages, and, and I find it incredibly interesting. Hmm. And so for, for there to be um, depictions of him uh, as, as, a, as a black African suggests that there must have been the people who were carving and must have had had models. They must have known uh, what, what black Africans look like, which suggests further that there must have been some sort of presence uh, of black Africans in Europe at this time. What do we know about that? The, the, the level and nature of that presence. There was a there was a presence. I mean, by the time the the legend in 13th century, by the time we talk about that black presence, you've had a few um, Africans who have travelled, uh, taken or travelled to Europe uh, through uh, possibly the slave trade. Uh, the Venetian slave trade, but also because some of them, as I said, were part of Roman Empire. So it's not an unknown presence at all. It's actually uh, so much um, documented that you find them in certain stories. You find them in legends, for example. Uh, but the key, uh, the key um, uh, discourse or debate is not so much about blackness. It's about religion. Uh, what poses problem was: Are they Muslims or not? Because if the Muslims, that's when uh, the antagonism really kicks off, and and therefore that's where they transform. They're depicted as different, um, as such. So um, again, but but I have to say uh, there's a caveat to this because color by that time also has started to be associated with black color, associated with the color of evil because of the Bible and all sorts of things. So it's not as clear cut as um, as we would like it to be. Yeah, the the attitude in the Middle Ages of color uh, in in many ways, not just not just blackness, but all colors had had uh, quite interesting um, uh, significance, didn't they? So so let's just so thinking about when when colors so when does race and skin color start to become an issue in Europe? Then I would probably say uh, the twelfth century, eleventh, uh, twelfth century. You have a group of um, doctors. Um, who were very much into examining the the uh, bo- women's body and black women's body. So there's something um, that that started to permeate that is related to first of all Arab um, Arab uh, medical 
doctors really examining all sort of bodies. And then you have Europeans examining a women's body and trying to see differences between uh, the black woman and the and the white woman in in, in child rearing, uh, breastfeeding, and all sort of and, and their their uh, sexual organs. So there's a discourse there that starts to emerge that is about um, kind of differences, uh, alleged differences, uh, a, a disturbing discourse because it's not based on, um, it's not scientific and yet it's it's done by 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 uh, by doctors. It's it's an alleged uh, alleged discovery about um, kind of uh, physical differences um, and attitude associated to attitude, for example. Uh, black women are said to be, uh, uh, you know, prone to intercourses, but good with child with, with childcare. You know, all sort of uh, of things that twenty first century um, people are not completely are familiar with. You know, uh, and they start in the eleventh century, twelfth century, and it's quite interesting. Uh, but it's not based on anything tangible. But you know, because they are respected at the time. This is seen as um, as proof of any significant differences, um, but it's not necessarily in terms of hierarchy. It's just differences, and then the hierarchy kicks in uh, with um, well, the Crusades, and as I said, religion, the association of religion and black um, and blackness becomes something crucial for European identity, actually. And does this take us into uh, the work of Geraldine Hen, who you talk about um, uh, reference quite a lot in, in the book? She's um, she's uh, a, a scholar who's written a, a very interesting um, book recently, um, and she, sort of her, she, she basically says that the question of race was fundamental to the formation of European identity. So is that is that tying into, into what what you're talking about? Absolutely, and I'm fascinated by by her work simply because it's the kind of questions I've been I've been um, interested in for a very long time, but she looks at uh, the medieval medieval Europe and the idea that identity and religion were something, but also the fact that uh, the differences, the racialization uh, is not necessarily what we think of, of it as today. Racialization also started with not just religion, but with geographical location. What she means by that is that the Irish population were racialized and deemed inferior uh, she looked at the way they were represented, and I'm laughing because I'm thinking about the map. Um, I've forgotten the name of the map, but there's a, a map um, that she talks about, and that map is supposed to represent the world. And you have Europe with fields, cathedrals, and uh, all sort of uh, very neat architectural, uh, well, neat as, as far as we can say, architectural representation. The rest of the world is just made of beasts, half humans and all sort of creatures. And this is how they saw the rest of the world. If you're not European, you're probably abnormal. Um, so it's already establishing a hierarchy and a racialization. And within that that uh, space, you have very close to, to, to nowadays Britain, um, Irish population deemed unworthy, bestial, and therefore not quite human. So racialization has many degrees and many layers, really. Is that, would that be the, the Hereford Map of Monday, I think? Yes, that's that the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, an amazing um, thing to look at, but you're right, also um, quite um, quite surprising in, uh, in what it shows in many respects. Um, so uh, is it, uh, reading the reviews of you, but one of your reviewers has said um, that for, for most of European history, religious difference was a far more important vector of prejudice than skin colour or 
geographic origin. So do you agree with that um, with that comment on uh, in one of the reviews? Um, uh, yes. And again, I would put um, a caveat to that because of the uh, the strength and the rule of the Bible. You know, the Bible was interpreted in so many different ways. And one of the, one of the many interpretations uh, was about this idea of blackness, blackness equated to uh, evil, evil equated to bad. And therefore, black means evil. And the way to redeem, redeem oneself was to turn white. And I, I talk about a few stories about that in, in the book. How do you redeem yourself by turning white? Well, through stories and legends, you know, the, the, the black Madonnas and the, uh, the idea of black Madonnas who were um, representations of, of uh, the Virgin Mary, really, who were uh, apparently have been sculpted black were turning white, but it might not be because of uh, the the time, the passing of time, but because this is supposed to represent how, uh, through um, devotion and purity, one is is made to turn white little by little over time. So there are so many interpretations of blackness already that are not that are actually linked to religion, but also with uh, to color. So does that mean that the, the medieval church was? driving an agenda of negativity towards black as a colour and black as a skin colour then? Black as a colour of uh, equated to evil, but it's not just blackness. It's also uh, the Jewish population. Uh, as I said, it's also um, Ireland. So it's not just the colour. It's to deal with difference. The other was deemed if the, the other was not Christian, but therefore the other were bound to be evil. Okay, um, so moving on towards the end of the medieval period, you've already talked a little bit about um, about the slave trade, and I guess that's where towards the end of the medieval period, that's where it starts to become more significant. And uh, your book takes us to Portugal, where we start to see uh, Portuguese merchants really getting actively involved in the slave trade in the uh, where sort of end of the fifteenth century. Is that, is that about right? yeah, yeah. So and 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 the, one of the key moments there is the fall of Constantinople um, in uh, in that in that period, fourteen eighty five, I think, was it? Um, it, which changes sort of the axis of European slavery, where slaves are, are enslaved, people are being brought from. So is that is that kind of a, a very important moment? Yes, it's a, it's a crucial moment because you also have enslaved people from uh, uh, um, from the Arab world who were then um, access became became accessible if you would, uh, to Europeans. In that the same time, you have, uh, from the, the south, southern part of Europe, you have uh, the Venetian merchants who were losing slowly their grips as well, and uh, the, the Portuguese fighting to have access to uh, the, the slave trade or the to the Arab trade and to the kind of sub-Saharan slave trade as well. So everything is opening up more or less at the same time. And Portugal is one of the first country to really take hold of that and um it's 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 and 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 just trying to use that advantage to to um to dominate the rest of Europe because again the context is very important the context is European kingdoms fighting over um over who's gonna have access to the throne with the support of the Pope. So the person who have access to those markets is the person who will be able to have access to wealth and therefore dictate what the rest of the Europeans would do. 
Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And if you're a black person, you're a free person, you have to walk with what they call the cartouche, which is um, a form of ID. And a form of ID means that, um, well, you're not completely free. You have to justify why you're walking as a black, a free black person uh, in, in Paris or, or in Nantes at the time. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Portugal is interesting, and, and you, you talk about that in your book in Iberia generally. As uh, talking about Europe here, and Iberia is obviously a large part of Europe, um, but it's got a very different experience to, to a lot of the rest of Europe in the sense that it was for uh, quite a long time part of a, a North African empire. So, does that mean that um, it's, there's there's very different attitudes and stories going on there? Yes, it's it's a, it's a story of defeat being transformed into uh, into victory. Portugal, like uh, many countries, uh, in fact, France, we always say Poitiers until Poitiers. You know, the Arabs went all the way up and stopped in Poitiers, which is kind of middle of France nowadays. So they went very far. So managing to get rid of of, of um, North Africans. Uh, was an important step. And then there was a cleaning process um, in terms of identities that took place where anything to do with the Arabs, as far as um, uh, culture was concerned, stayed. But as far as the connection with skin color, with identity, closer identity, visible identity, was kind of um, removed from, from, from the culture. So Portugal becomes, between brackets, white, uh, trying to forget that, you know, there was still a very stronghold of Arab culture that stayed for centuries. And it's quite an interesting story as well, because uh, Portugal wants to claim that, that that space within the European environment um, uh, and will manage to do that, actually, uh, till, you know, till the end of um, the 19th century, in, as far as the slave trade is concerned, actually. 
staying in Iberia, can you can you tell us about Juan Latino, who's uh, who's a, a, an interesting figure in your book? Yes, he's a very um, very interesting character. So um, he he was born. Uh, we we don't know if he was born in Granada, but or North Africa, but. Um, he was um he grew up in granada as an enslaved person and managed to get um the um the support of of the elite uh, of the crown the court and he was somebody who was intellectually uh, stimulating absolutely fascinating very very clever extremely intelligent and extremely curious and uh, somebody who was devouring anything to do with literature uh history so rapidly, he, he rose amongst the rank, he becomes an academic, he's supported by the Crown again, and he's going to write a series of um, kind of pamphlets and plays and um, philosophical um, um, essays that are incredibly important because he was somebody who was supporting um, the Christian and, and the Catholics, but at the same time, Granada at the time was a place where um, what I mentioned earlier, um, uh, uh, they were trying to get rid of the Arab influence and therefore there was a population called the Moriscos who were um, Arabs who had been forced to convert to Catholicism who were oppressed. You also have a Jewish population that was oppressed in Granada. And Juan Latino is going to manage to do something extraordinary is to actually denounce that without antagonizing those who are in power. So he wrote uh, it, something that is incredible. He talks about the Battle of Lepante, uh, and it's a battle that you know that opposed the Arabs uh, uh, to um, to the crown. And what he does is he's trying to show both sides and the pain that war causes uh, for all. Instead of just writing uh, something that is um, you know that is is celebrating. Um, uh, his sponsors, if you would, he's actually saying, "Look, it's terrible. What's happening is dis- is completely destroying Granada, and you need to look at this as um, the death of of certain cultures. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary, and he was extraordinary." Yeah, no, he's definitely he's definitely worth finding out more about, and uh, you have a, a fascinating chapter in the book all about him. So, sort of staying in in this sort of space, uh, I'm just going to. Take a quote from the book. By the 16th century, southern Europe was characterised by a sizable black population. Some of them, such as the first uh, Duke of Florence, Alessandro de' Medici, reached prominence, while others lived their lives in subjugation. Um, so how big a, how big a population are we talking here across southern Europe, do you imagine? I can't remember the figures because actually there were studies done by that because uh, the population was mostly the population, uh, um, is it 20,000? It was a, in, in Spain. It was a population that was, um, because they were enslaved people, they were recorded as such. So we know that they, we know the numbers. Um, what is interesting is that uh, Medici doesn't really feature in that category because um, the more you have people from uh, sub-Sahara Africa or North Africa who are subjugated, the 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 more clearer it becomes that mentalities have changed. Those populations are deemed, um, you know, are deemed not unworthy. They're very useful, are considered to be useful, but they're deemed inferior. So you have a number of plays written about them, um, caricaturing them. But in my book, what I wanted to show is that within those spaces, you also have some form of agency. 
because in certain uh, in certain uh, instances that I used uh, and I used the work of Erin Rowe for that is that um, some some enslaved people when their masters decided to sell them they had a say in the cell and they had a say in the cell how by the way they behaved in the first few uh, encounters and by the way they behave in the kind of um, uh, probation period that enslaved people had uh, were given. In other words, if you're selling an enslaved person, um, for example, for five days, 10 days, they're going to spend spend the time with the person who bought them. And during those five, 10 days, the, 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 the enslaved person could completely misbehave and then you lose yourself. So there's some form of resistance, some form of agency. And you have other examples where these people actually had the ear of their master and were able to influence certain things, spread gossip, destroy reputations, and so on and so forth. So not just passive objects of slavery, but actively engaged in in society, uh, albeit in a a constrained fashion. Yes. I also talked about, um, you know, black um, fraternities, uh, black fraternities, 15th century, incredibly important and incredibly powerful. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, anyway, there are many instances of agency in there that I wanted to talk about. Mm. M- moving to uh, Northern Europe, um, I, by the 17th century, the Dutch Republic, France and England are, are more actively involved in, in the slave trade a, a, as well. So I guess it's at that point that attitudes towards black Africans start to start to change across the, the continents? Is that is that a fair thing to say? Yes. Uh, by that time, they, they have dramatically changed. Economic domination and economic success have made um, Europeans quite uh, um, arrogant in terms of their consideration to whatever is seen as the other. There are justification, you know, initially it was supposed to be a trade, a trade based on human beings, but nonetheless a trade. But to justify that trade, there are also the theories about the inferiority of the commodity. Because it's very hard to have a commodity that speaks, that um, reflects, and that challenges. And therefore, there's a narrative constructed about this alleged inferiority and, and, and faults. But it doesn't quite go along the way with what is happening on the ground. In other words, they constantly challenge. There's There's these areas I talked to you about of collaborations are really difficult to reconcile and therefore to be able to reconcile them um, and to justify the fact that it's still these populations are still subjugated. A series of laws were passed throughout Europe preventing those from uh, the colonies in the Caribbean um, from coming to, to Europe which put those, um, the masters who were in the Caribbean at, at odd because they, they usually traveled and wanted to travel with their uh, enslaved people. So you have a, a kind of a fight, a battle of the wills, but also legal battles between um, uh, owners and those and merchants who are uh, in, in European capitals uh, and, and through the law, really. And that's all. That one of the one of the interesting themes in your uh, in your discussion here is is the sort of the ambiguous legal status of black Africans in Europe at the time. You've, I, I guess you've got some people who were enslaved and some people who were not, and uh, and how how that was defined and delimited. It was 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 hard for uh, white Europeans to to come to terms with. I think is 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 what you're what you're um, saying. Yes, exactly. Again, I find spaces of agency and resistance within those environments. The law is saying that if you're an enslaved person, well, it depends when it says that, but 
in some places. If you're an enslaved person, when you arrive in European capitals, you become automatically free because slavery normally, allegedly, does not exist. You become a servant, uh, but you're enslaved, but you become a servant. But if you're a servant, you are therefore allowed normally to just walk away. Uh, but but that's not quite it. You have people resisting this idea that they could just lose their enslaved people uh, when they, they reach European capitals. And we have a few instances of, of, of people walking away. But to ensure that they don't walk away, uh, France, for example, in 1776 adopts, um, uh, set up La Police des Noirs, which is the police for black people. And if you're a black person and you're a free person, you have to walk with what they call the cartouche, which is um, a form of ID. And a form of ID means that, um, well, you're not completely free. You have to justify why you're walking as a black, a free black person uh, in, in Paris or, or in Nantes at the time and and just and, and, and really prove that you, you are indeed uh, free which was not always easy to to demonstrate as well. So, and and within that space, again, you have cases, legal cases, where people manage to actually challenge their former master and and the law by saying that, well, you shouldn't even, it's the stop and search of today, if you would. You shouldn't even be doing that because it's targeting a population. And I find it absolutely fascinating. I think you've got a line in your book where you said that law effectively criminalised being black in in France. Is that is that yes. right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> crazy. Um, let's move on to to abolition of the slave trade and slavery. Again, agency. That's one of the big themes in in abolition studies at the moment. Is it's not you know we shouldn't understand this in the terms of Wilberforce and people like that. Is there's agency of the of people who are enslaved very much in the, in that process is it, that's that's a, an important point to take on board isn't it yes a very important point so while uh, abolition talks are taking place uh, in europe you also have a huge num- a huge number of of um uh, rebellions in the caribbean that are forcing owners to to kind of rethink and they want the support of the 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 you know uh, mainland england for example mainland britain and they can't have that support um completely because well because of the debate and within those spaces meaning in england you also have black presence and black organization and black people some called sons of africa for example who who are working with white abolitionists this is an incredible moment of collaboration, an incredible moment that I still think is has been um, underestimated because these people were holding secret meetings, um, private public meetings, and actually working together to 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 um, to come to uh, solutions and to strategy that would work, um, mainly outside Parliament, but within Parliament as well, uh, as we know through Wilberforce and many others. So is that, a, is that a research project that needs more investigation, if you feel it's being undercooked? No, no, no. These are stories uh, many of us have been uh, teaching for many years. But, uh, you know, there's a, a push to always talk about the great names. And Wilberforce was one of the many great names. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's really important to show the nuances and how he could not have done what he did. Uh, if he hadn't had the support of others outside that and the support of a black population as well. Okay, uh, we're going to charge on again. I knew that you know this is an absolute uh, ridiculous whistle-top store through, but w- w- I'm going to take us to the 20th century and, and sort of the big fractures of the 20th century, the, the two world wars, um, obviously. Um, what impact did those two wor- world wars have on the place of African Europeans and, uh, and, 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 their, and their role and place in, in Europe? 
to me, the two worlds will become something, something else. It's the it's the first time that more, more people are seeing uh, black regiments. Um, it's also an area of collaborations uh, of distrust, of course, but also of collaboration, and that completely defined the way. Um, European history is is thought, and for many years now, many people have been working on re um, on presenting that history of collaborations. David Lusoga has done some work on this, and and many others. So it's completely shifted our normally our outlook on the black or people of African descent and people of Asian descent. But I think that we got stuck stuck into that period. Many, for many people who are aware of this. They think that this is when migration started, and we know it wasn't. So again, we need to to show that you know there were many of them, many of the, the populations were coming from empire, but many were already in Britain, and they they you know they joined the ranks and they fought um, with the allies. Did attitudes change markedly as a result of that? Yes and no. Um, you have more black babies and brown babies born after the. The war, but attitudes in terms of racism are, um, you know, there's there's a rejection of those collaborations and those forms of collaboration. So there's a reckoning or recognition that this population um, exists and collaborated and helped, but there's a rejection that they should um, actually be considered fully part of of European identity and fully be considered European. So um, they change, but not necessarily in the way. Uh, people were expecting. But things are different from the slave trade. So to a certain extent, you can say that it's better-ish. Mm. Okay, so um, we, we've, we've really charged for it, but one, it's highlighted one of the central tenets of your book um, in, a, in a very uh, top-level way, which you might want to say a little bit more about, which is the, the Black history is European history, and we've you know we've come up with a, a few examples there to demonstrate that. But um, do you want to just elaborate on that a little bit more? Because I, I feel like you haven't had uh, ample opportunity to stress that. Uh, when you have encounters of populations, uh, when you have difficult encounters, but also collaborations, when you have areas of complexity, you want to narrow it down. You want something that is simple, and you just resume it and uh, summarize it to European history. But yes. African history is European history and vice versa. Because in the book, I also talk about those Europeans who are actually the Mamluks, who are also Africans, who are also Muslims. I also talk about um, children brought out of the, from the Union of Europeans and uh, Black mothers on the west coast of Africa. So it's, it's yeah, Black Europeans in, is African history and vice versa. That was Olivetta Telly speaking to Dave Musgrove as part of our virtual lecture series. Olivette's book, African Europeans and Untold History, is on sale now, published by Hearst. If you're interested in attending one of our virtual lectures, we have some great talks coming up, including Eleanor Cleghorn, who will be speaking about the story of women and medicine on the 22nd of July. To find out more, go to historyextra.com forward slash events. And listeners to this podcast can get 15% off tickets for that talk. Just use coupon code POD15 at the checkout. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow for an episode on the Enlightenment. <laughs>